Hello and welcome to the inaugural episode of Two Teachers Talking with me, M. And me, M. Oh, very good. There we go. M and M, isn't it? Very good, that. Very good. Um, so this is a, a new podcast that um, M and I have decided to record. Each week we'll be taking two topics uh, and as teachers we'll be reflecting on a little bit of these issues. We'll be talking on some of the big kind of themes around them. We'll be thinking about them and really getting to grips with things as disparate all the way from, as we're going to start with quite incredibly um, this afternoon, African history and post-colonialism all the way through to non-league football legends. So we think we've got a decent coverage of a variety of topics. Uh, The rules really are that one person is going to have researched a little bit and done a little bit of background, which for this week is me, and then the other person is going in a little bit more unawares, um, although obviously with some fairly good uh, initial knowledge anyway. I mean, we are fairly intelligent, I'm sure you'd agree. Sort of. Yeah. So we've got some background knowledge to go, and then we're just going to see where those conversations develop. Um, you might enjoy it, you might be bored, but we'll find out. So we're going to start rather extraordinarily. I was thinking, what is the one thing that um, M and M would absolutely love to talk about more than anything else? And what could be better than the entirety uh, of African history from 1945 to 2015? This book, and let me just demonstrate, is a monster. Ooh. Do you think that's gave enough of a... Yeah, that's a bit better. It's a monster. I think it's the third time Guy Arnold has published this book, Africa, A Modern History, 1945 to 2015. Um, And it basically charts the political, economic and social changes from all of the nations, as far as I'm aware, within the African continent uh, in the post-war period. And if you can't read it, you can always use it as a doorstop. Well, indeed, it weighs a a metric tonne, I'm pretty certain. So uh, before we dive into my kind of background reading, what are you, M? Uh, aware of when we when I say the word African modern history 45 to 2015 what kind of things are popping into your mind I'm thinking about uh, colonialism and the uh, sort of demise of colonialism and what uh, some might refer to as sort of the scramble for Africa Mm. certainly post uh, post 60s and how the um, application of a European a structure in this sort of country system and the drawing up of lines to um, denote where countries begin and end is very much a, a square peg in a round hole with regards to how Africa needed to be treated. So, um, yeah, that's where I'm with that. So I'm looking forward to this conversation and where it goes. Absolutely. I think border disputes is definitely one of the main things I think of. And, of course, it's impossible to separate um, decolonisation from the history of Africa in this period. Um, I have chosen, because it is, I think, 1,300 pages, sorry. I think, um, anyway, I've chosen the Nigerian Civil War, which seems a bit of an odd place to start because it's not right in '45 and it's not late. It's kind of about 20 years after where the book begins. But I thought, um, just in terms of a, a conflict that's often overlooked, is particularly brutal, but is also really significant in the history of probably what we'd say is a fairly um, one of the better well-known African nations. Obviously, there, there are plenty out there. Um, but certainly Nigeria would rank top of the list if you ask some different people about it. But they probably wouldn't know very much about the Nigerian Civil War. So we're just going to start by talking about that. I'll give you a bit of background, if you like, and then we can just reflect on some of the, um, the issues there and how that you think it might have shaped Nigerian history. So <clears throat> once the um, World War II is over, obviously the, the famous winds of change, which McMillan um, talks about in South Africa, are blowing. And lots of countries across Africa are looking for something a bit different. Um, Nigeria is no exception. Uh, as the kind of the, the colonial powers start to leave, Nigeria starts to split up into different regions. So you've got the north-south 
east and west regions of Nigeria, um, kind of all overlooked by, well, they're kind of dominated by different ethnic groups, which obviously plays a massive role in post-colonialism anyway. But um, particularly kind of in the early 60s, it's regional. So it's north versus south for Nigeria in terms of how it's um, differentiated. In the western region and kind of the northern western region, uh, in 1960, they had a big focus on education. So there's three uh, million children in school across 17,000 schools, which for uh, a nation which was almost entirely um, illiterate in terms of obviously its, its, um, its people, right up until the end of World War II, um, that's quite an extraordinary achievement. But if you compare that to areas to the northeast and into the southern areas, um, which actually contains about half the total population, it's about 250,000 children in school at the same time. So you've got a massive regional disparity in the 1960s, which is causing some different issues. Um, and obviously decolonization doesn't have a particularly good uh, reputation at the time. People are using that as a way to show Look, decolonization is not working. The prior um, ways were much, much better for the people. North and South, as a result, are very suspicious of each other. Yeah, I think um, the some of the ethnicities that we're referring to, mm. and I could have got this wrong, one is Hausa Fulani. Mm-hmm. The, the, uh, the, nor- the northern um, eth- ethnic group. Mm-hmm. And um, they were, to my knowledge, they're um, Muslim. Muslim ethnicity, whereas in the south, and particularly where the capital, as it was at the time, uh, Lagos, mm. uh, are the, um, the the people that refer to themselves as the the Igbo. Igbo, yeah, they're going to play a key role. Um, and certainly, they seem to be the people who held the power. I think part of the other thing is because the southwest was so um, the British influence there, they, they had logistics and infrastructure in place. And I mean, this is a dispute that rages on today: is mm. that in the north, the north of the territory in particular. Uh, which is now a stronghold for Boko Haram, part of the rationale as to why they are the fighting is that there has been this uh, lack of spending on infrastructure, schools, healthcare in the north mm. of the country. Mm. So I think, um, yeah, interesting. Regional things like that certainly obviously play a role, but yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the Igbo um, ethnic group because, as I say, ethnicity plays a massive thing there. Um, so unsurprisingly, and obviously post-colonialism is kind of littered with these, there is a military coup in January '66. Um, and there's also a second counter coup in July 66. Biafra, um, obviously, which is the majority where the, um, the Igbo uh, people mainly live in the region of Nigeria, they're very much wanting to split away from the federal government of Nigeria. They're not interested in the remaining part of it. They feel like the negative treatment, uh, the ways in which their region is, is treated poorly, um, they want something a bit different. So it looks as though it's going to take on a very much a, a, civil, a civil war, really, um, which is only, of course, heightened at the time by a Cold War intrigue. Um, so the USSR sell weapons to the federal government. Biafra is supported by other nations, mainly Western nations. France plays a tentative role. Portugal, others like that, start to supply weapons. Interestingly, to the isn't isn't it the case that this is one of the few conflicts where obviously other nations are meddling, mm. where the USSR and the USA technically are on the same side? Yeah. Uh, which is quite interesting. And that is, I think, simply because the USA had also invested a lot in the infrastructure, particularly of Lagos, and they didn't want it to fall into the hands of rebels, or what they seemed to be rebels. And the USSR 
didn't never liked the idea of supporting um, anyone who was trying to secede, because mm. um, obviously it would give it would give the the countries in their own block ideas. Mm. Um, so yeah, I thought that was quite interesting. Yeah, I mean, as you say, it's a rarity, isn't it? But, I mean, all of, many of the other um, proxy wars fought in the Cold War, obviously, are, are specifically Cold War um, enemies. So that that is a bit of an interesting one. Um, I'm not going to go into too much detail on the actual conflicts themselves. They are quite um, brutal, but. They end up really after 900 days of these coups and counter coups, um, which are focused obviously on Biafra wanting to break away from Nigeria and the federal government trying to bring them in and make sure they don't have that ability to do so, uh, ends up with about 100,000 dead across the two armies. So the, um, the, mainly the, obviously the, the Igbo breakaways and the federal governments. And then around anywhere between 500,000 to 2 million civilians are killed uh, as well. So it's not really a very long war. It's 900 days. Uh, and as I said right at the start, it's not necessarily a, a brilliantly well-known conflict. No. Um, but in terms of body count and amount of deaths, it's huge. 4.6 million Biafrans leave Nigeria forever as refugees and have ne- and never returned. And of course, that's what, probably one of the first instances where we see sort of starving children on our TV mm. screens. And mm. that's, uh, certainly with the, the Western nations, why they probably supported the Biafran cause. Yeah, absolutely. That, obviously, the television's advent. Not too long before, really. I mean, obviously, we know this ends in, in the late 60s, but it's certainly not that new for so many people to be able to see these images. Um, and in some of the outcomes are quite interesting. So uh, white racists, obviously, in the region used the conflict as a brilliant uh, excuse, I suppose, to say this is why decolonization is not a good thing, because it leads to horrendous civil wars. Um, you know, violence and, and breakdown of, of order, which is interesting because obviously in the region around it, a lot of those regimes don't entirely collapse for, you know, a good sort of 30, 40 years hence. Yeah, I mean, if you, if you look at that as a model, and I, I think about like Libya as a, as a, a more recent example, mm. you know, it sort of took a tyrant in Gaddafi to, to unite again three main ethnicities in um, what would be sort of Tripoli... Uh, Benghazi and Fizan, I think the other one is on the east, that again, historically, in Greek times, in Roman times, had been three separate entities that, that yeah. dealt, dealt with themselves <coughs> separately. Mm-hmm. But obviously under, under European metric is, is drawn together with these lines, is referred to as Libya. And the second that sort of tyrant is removed, reverts back to type with... Um, I think they refer to themselves as sort of um, different emirates tr- uh, trying to, um, and, and caliphs trying to mm. step forward and take back control with their ethnicity being being the main dominant one. Yeah. Um, so quite a similar theme. It, it, it never seems to end well when uh, the colonial um, structure is left um, so quickly. It always seems to promote violence. Mm. I mean, obviously, a lot of it in the as you get through the later twentieth century is because Britain is fairly desperate to decolonize money for more than anything. It's very expensive to maintain that. Um, but as you say, by leaving so quickly, it kind of causes so many problems. Um, a lot of the condemnation once the Nigerian civil war was over was pinched uh, pitched towards a lot of those Western nations, mainly Britain, um, obviously for leaving such a mess. Uh, and as you say, the infrastructures they had left behind were in many ways just kind of abandoned. And so it's quite a lot of international condemnation to the Western nations for their role in it, which obviously they play a, a significant role in in some of those um, things that went on. So, I mean, the amount of people that are displaced and killed is obviously uh, an atrocity of its own. But it's interesting, isn't it, that that ends in the, in the late 60s into 1968, 69, 70 um, and decolonization. It's ta- it takes on slightly different flavor 
Um, I think the Nigerian Civil War is a really useful marker for decolonization as a whole, um, and it certainly shows some of the brutalities of of the end of the uh, the empire as it was collapsing around it. So I think it's a, it's an interesting um, moment in history that, but it's also an interesting part of the the book. It's not the entirety of it, of course. Um, but it, it's a really interesting area, and I know that we've only touched on it there. Um, this is certainly not a podcast dedicated to African history, only dipping into these issues. Um, but just if you are interested or you've got any more interest in, in that, I mean, it is Guy Arnold's African Modern History. I was actually looking for, uh, and I, I wasn't actually able to find too many books on African history in the 20th century that were that easily accessible by African or black authors. Guy Arnold's obviously not. Um, the Africans by David Lamb is a really, really good book. It's not dissimilar to Guy Arnold's Africa. It does similar things and looks at similar areas within Africa. Um, Pre-Colonial Black Africa by Cheikh Anta Diop is a really, really good book. Um, and that one looks particularly, obviously, at Africa's past before um, colonialism starts as well. Um, so there's some further reading there for you. But I will, I will certainly, um, when I'm looking around, I would certainly like to see a little bit more of those voices that are kind of given that push to the forefront because otherwise we become perhaps a little too reliant on just professors and professorials writing about these things from a distance which makes it a little bit hard perhaps to gain the the primary evidence from that i think yeah um also if you further reading for you as well uh, prisoners of geography by tim marshall has mm. been an, an excellent read that i've been listening to on audible and it really it, it's um, sort of um, an idiot's guide to um how geography shapes shapes the world that we live in and certainly as a sort of as a pretext to considering uh, the colonial colonialization of these African nations, um, it's very very intre- interesting indeed. So that's definitely worth a listen as well. Mm. You don't like reading books, do you? You look for the podcast or the audio books. I do, yeah. probably because I'm visually impaired. I do I do struggle sometimes. <laughs> and with I keep losing my glasses. And I keep losing my glasses. Yeah. 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 See, I don't listen to that many audio books weirdly, but I do listen to podcasts. Um, but maybe I should try. I mean, that as a, an audio book could be six seven years worth. I don't know. It could be a banger. Hefty. Hefty. No doubt. Right. So moving on from the heavy stuff then, obviously um, we try and make sure we've got a couple of topics each week just so we're not um, leaning too further just towards the heavy or the the things that not everyone would be interested in. So the second one is a little bit lighter. To be honest, I think you'll be able to take the lead on this anyway. Um, I was thinking for that one about, we're big fans of football, uh, Em and I, and we were just thinking about what could we do to make maybe think a bit differently. So the first topic for football-wise that we've gone for here... Uh, we've we've rather brilliantly nicknamed it non-league legends. I'm going to go over to you first of all because when you hear that term, or sorry, lower league legends, I should say, you could have non-league if you like. Um, I'm very much more of a football purist, whereas you are much more of an all-rounder, I think. So I, if it's not <laughs> world class to watch uh, and to enjoy, I find it very difficult to bond with it. Whereas I know you're much broader with that. So when you hear the toast terms, lower league, non-league legends, what what kind of things are you thinking about? Uh, are, we, are we referring to uh, lads who have sort of come through grassroots football and have um, sort of applied their craft in the lower leagues prior to making it big? Or are we talking about sort of local lads who are sort of legends in their own community because they have played? I think, I mean, it could be either. I like, because again, I think you'd be much better than the latter. I, I like the idea of either. So basically, I know, it was, I know I gave you the topic, but you haven't necessarily done any research, but I think you'd be very informed on this anyway. What sort of things are you thinking about? What sort of legends of the game come to mind? Can you describe any of them? Are there famous moments? Have they scored great goals, great defending? What sort of things come to your brain? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's two elements, isn't there, of course? 
We've all played with people who have clearly well, uh, got a lot of... Not all of us have, mate. <laughs> not all of us. Okay, some of us <laughs> have played with lads who've uh, ooze talent and class. Maybe they've been involved in um, academy systems, scholarship systems mm. as, um, as a boy. And, I, and the best example I've got is I went to school in Liverpool and... Um, there was you surprised a, there me. There was a... a <laughs> Uh, that would be, might be a surprise. <laughs> there was a, a lad who I played school with, one of my good friends. Uh, I won't tell you what his name was, but um, he was the um, the captain of the Everton Youth Academy at the time. Um, I always remember at school uh, he was representing England under, oh, maybe they were under seventeens. Can't remember exactly what year group, but um, the ho- the whole school got to watch this lad play. It was a big deal. Um, and he was brilliant and he captained the side and he scored a goal and they referred to him as the next, they said he was going to be the next Paul Scholes. Mm. Uh, as far as his career went thereafter, um, again, play, he was player of the year for about three years running, club captain at his at his age group, uh, becomes a man at sort of 17, 18 mm. and um, ends up at Bradford when they were in the in the Prem yep. but didn't didn't play. Uh, ends up at Morecambe, Halifax Town, and maybe Kidderminster. Nice, yeah. Uh, currently back with the Everton coaching system at under five, under six level. Now, like I've played a lot of football, I've played with some good players, I've played with some players who've gone on to make it professionally. And clearly, I've never, never that good myself. But you do get an eye for the difference, um, sort of the, the tenacity, the aggression. Um, the the technique certainly striking a ball tackling ability to get around athleticism and just um, a brain that that can pick out a pass that knows where to be they're all all the sorts of the things that you look for in lads that go on go on to do it and for whatever reason despite him being the the best player that I've ever played with and against mm. uh, he didn't make it I thought um, you played with Yakubu. No, um, Victor Anachibi. Oh, Anachibi, yeah. Victor, yeah. yeah. Sure, you um, right. I mean, when I say I, I played with him, he, he played in a side that were in, in my in oh, league. Oh, yeah, in your league, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, Victor's another prime example. <laughs> um, at 15, 16, Victor Anachibi was built like a man. Mm. Uh, he was still six foot two at 15, yeah. and he was strong as an ox, and he was quick. Yeah. Um, and when he struck the ball, if the goalie saved it, the goalie went into the ball with him. So, <laughs> um, Vic, Victor, you know, had all the attributes to make an excellent footballer. I wouldn't go as far as to say he had natural ability. He just had um, the athleticism. The other lad I'm talking about had all the ability in the world, but unfortunately he wasn't very big. Mm. Um, and that that's, I, I, th- I can only assume that hindered him later on. Um, obviously, I don't know the ins and outs of it. But um, but yeah, it's so it's interesting, and then also in your community, especially when you when you're playing at a, a lower level, there are lads that stick out, sort of like cult local lad heroes that again maybe they've played for academy teams. And I don't know a couple of lads who were at Tranmere, at Preston North End, at Burnley, and um, well they've got something. So when they play like um, Sunday League, Saturday League. They stick out like an absolute sore thumb. So it, it's an interesting debate. I'd, I'd like to know why these lads make it and how they don't. And is it, is it luck or is it... I'm not sure, really. So I'm, I'm interested in that because you said about um, when they stick out. So if there's three attributes that you had to... I know you mentioned things like physicality and things like that and aggression. But if there's three attributes you had to name that you think would really um, kind of, I suppose, uh, disseminate between 
you know, you, very good player, to someone else who perhaps could move into a non-league or a lower league team? What are the, are the three attributes you could pin down? So, certainly with lower league, the low, in the lower leagues, whether it's sort of league one and below, mm. athleticism, I think, is the most important. Mm. I think you can have ath- extreme athleticism in those leagues without that much natural ability. And that old, you know, sort of that old adage, give me an athlete and I'll give you a footballer. Mm. And, we, and we know some really good examples of that from, from the past with uh, Premier League players, even like uh, John Carew. He was not a footballer when he was picked up, but he had the, 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 you know, all the ability to be one and the athleticism to be one. And with the right coaching, um, you, you can. Uh, we also see some great, great players... There's a significant difference, I think, between the likes of Steven Gerrard and Messi. They mm. both play a similar role. They've both been um, incredibly successful in their careers. Steven Gerrard is someone who's had to work incredibly hard. It's, he is a, um, a product of coaching and dedication and hard work. And Messi was just born like that. Mm. And it's something that can't be taught. Um, so uh, we talked about athleticism. I also think that having a brain that allows you to, to be coached, being coachable... Um, at school, we've seen lads come through the, here that are in the, in the uh, local academies. It's the ones that can take advice on board and connect on it. The ones that are coachable that go on that go on to succeed. If you keep making the same mistakes on a football pitch and you're not prepared to change or listen, you're never going to succeed. That's exactly the same in the classroom, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. it's exactly the same. Uh, exactly the same attitudes. Mm. Um, so I'd say, yeah. So athleticism, certainly in the lower leagues, I'd mm. say um, at, attitude, attitude, as well as the aptitude, uh, and a willingness to be coached. And um, this my third point B. Pro- probably, um, you know, there's, there also has to be ability there. There has to be. You've mm. got, you know, you your close controls got to be good. Uh, aerial ability, strength, um, technique, shooting, passing. For the sounds of it, that you might rank that as a third of the three, though, because you've mentioned about natural ability perhaps not being as significant no. as the ability to be coachable. No, no, I don't think so. No. I don't think so because without without the others and without the athleticism, if you can't get around that pitch, you you're useless, mm. especially. Um, League One, League Two, I think, those lower leagues. I mean, the only chance they have when they play against these Premier League teams is to get physical. That's what they do uh, because they know they can match them in physicality. Um, They might not be able to match them sort of physically for 90 minutes, fitness-wise, and they're certainly not going to try and outplay them. But um, you know, physically, I think those lower leagues—that's that's what it's about. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Well, there is a lot. There's a lot there to to pro- think about process in terms of some names. I mean, you mentioned obviously you are a name of a mate. Um, there's a couple that I doing some reading, reflecting uh, as a massive Arsenal fan. I remember a little a few years ago when Chirakpon was coming through, who's still I think Championship player still. He's still kind of in the top of league, uh, upper leagues. Sanchez Watt used to play alongside him. Uh, he was young, kind of similar to what you mentioned, athletic and quick. Um, not the greatest touch, as far as I remember, uh, but he was certainly quick. He uh, dropped down the leagues quite quickly. Uh, he ended up, I think, a couple of years ago playing for Wheelstone, probably obviously the most famously for their yeah. Raiders. Um, so I was having a little look at his um, statistics, and he's done pretty well. Yeah. Um, but he's not the only Arsenal player I'm aware of who, who've fallen quite significantly. So um, Mark Randall used to play, well, I don't think you've heard him, 10 years ago. Nope. Not a great player. English, um, was supposed to be a good midfielder. Wenger really liked him, so his touch and goal was brilliant. I had a look where he ended up. I think he ended up in non-league 
you know, a team I don't think I'd even heard of. Mm-hmm. Um, Fran Marida, who's a midfielder, a Spanish midfielder, compared all the time to Cesc Fabregas, slightly younger, played a lot in Carling Cup games back in the day. He ended up in some, I'm pretty certain, either one of the bottom Spanish leagues or even a non-league team in Spain. Um, which I always found interesting because you see those players and you see their, their kind of brief hints of flair. And Sanchez was a great example of that. Um, and obviously they've, they've worked in academies for years at Arsenal Academies or, or the, top, the top league academies. They've gone on loan once or twice maybe to a championship or a League One club and then they disappear off the face of the earth, which I, I understand there's going to be structural reasons for it because you can only play 11 players plus your subs and some players aren't going to sit around and wait. But then some players just obviously aren't good enough. And I, I just find, I've always been fascinated by that. How do you get from mm. joining academy at, you know, whatever it might be, eight, nine, ten years old, staying there for so long, and then it's just so blindingly obvious that you haven't got what it takes for the, maybe even the top two leagues or even the, the league system itself? I guess there's a point where they, they, you know, the, the coaches, the manager, they decide that uh, there's no point investing in you anymore mm. because you're not going to get any better. But clearly you've shown quality in the past where you think that you've got half a chance and I do think especially at the top level that you know the room for error is Mm. so slight the difference between top top quality and not is uh, is frightening Mm. I mean top top Premier League strikers now well all of them imagine what they're going to do in the in the championship and and proven I'm thinking of like my own team with Everton we've got Malpai he looks like he's not going to not going to do a lot this season but he was the top goal scorer in the championship prior to Tony breaking the record yeah yeah so you know he he is well proven yeah um I mean we were talking about Wilson there and a player at Wilson mm. I I go and watch that league um and because I'm, I also follow Wrexham, and um, I'd say the difference is the spine, spines of the team are very good, but they, they lack a lot, certainly on the flanks. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult one because then I think also about people like Jesse Lingard, and I think there's a lad who didn't really break into the Man United team until, until he was. Except when he played against like sort of mid 20s. And you think. How can Wayne Rooney play for Everton at 16 and, and mm. Jesse Lingard is breaking into the United team? I think it's about 25, 26. It's seen an awful long time waiting in the wings. Yeah. Um, when perhaps, like you said, should he have been in other, other places? Mm. I don't know. P- promoting his you know, promoting his career there. Yeah, elsewhere. Yeah. Difficult. Yeah. I think it is really difficult, but I, I, I will never, ever um, understand it. I, mean, I think that coaching system is so... Uh, extraordinary that you can see that and you can give them the chances and then they just haven't made it and they've got to walk out the door but those that, ha- that have that smallest flair and you can just about see it in really young players 17, 18 and the way that they can then coach that within two, three years to be uh, in some cases truly exceptional um, I think is, is I've never never not been impressed by that Wenger um, used the analogy of a house uh, and he said none of it matters and you've got to start weirdly with the roof so the brain and he said, uh, you can be, um, you know, have the natural ability, have the athleticism, etc. But if you want the top level, so not the lower league drop downs, if you want that top level, the th- main thing is the roof or the brain. Yeah. Uh, the understanding of coping, not just with the pressures of the game, but also making those moment to moment decisions yeah. uh, within a game. And then obviously looking at it strategically. Um, and I think for in terms of where I'm not sure whether if you look at I mean I don't watch much lower league football but if you think about it in terms of those key to key moments in the within the brain looking the vision there are still good players I'm sure who play creative you know creatively in the lower leagues 
uh, but I think that always stuck me that that Wengerite thing of it has to start in the mind and if it's not that brain that's switched on you can be the best player ever but if you haven't got that mental application or that that moment to moment kind of mental uh, agility you just you're never going to make it it's yeah. always going to be dropping down couldn't couldn't agree with more especially at that top level mm. I think uh, the brain is is the is the most important mm. um because there's so much on the line split split second decisions mm. and we see it every single week in the Premier League don't we prior to usually a, you know a VAR decision as well um yeah, yeah, interesting. The last thing I just wanted to, because I don't think we're going to talk too many about many players, but I think that some analysis is interesting. Um, it's an age-old question, usually probably quite boring. The best players, I don't, I don't mean like um, godlike players. It doesn't have to be Ronaldo, Messi, etc. But some of the better players in the Premier League in the last 10, 15 years, again, do you think they would thrive in lower leagues? So I'm talking drop down maybe to League Two as an experiment. Do you think some of the better players we've seen in that time uh, would do particularly well. I, mean, I imagine they would stand out individually, but how would they fit into a team? Do you think it'd be as easy as in the Premier League or the, the, the La Liga? Or I'm a, a firm believer you're only as good as the team around mm. um, you. Know, you consider like Haaland. Does he score the goals if he's playing for Luton Town or someone like that? Mm. If he hasn't got the... I mean, ultimately, if your team doesn't have the ball, you, you can't score. So yeah. if you're, you know... Sorry, any Luton fans, but um, if you know are... You know, would would Erling Haaland change Everton's season this season? I, I doubt it, um, because Everton don't cross the ball mm. and they don't get the ball in the box, so mm. he's not going to score. Um, a lot of his goals are, are, you know, have been assisted brilliantly. Uh, you know, dinks to the back post, bought the ball across the you know the six yard area there, and he's and he knows when to arrive. So yeah, I mean, if you put him in that Wrexham team, does he? Does he score more goals? I'm not sure. I don't think he changes team season. If that team is playing well and scoring goals, he will thrive, no doubt. But he's not going to go to a team at the bottom of the league and just turn it round dramatically. I wouldn't have said no. Um, don't get me wrong. There'll be moments, and, <laughs> and no doubt he'll, you know, score wonder goals and things. But I don't think you can carry. I don't think you can carry ten players. No, no, absolutely not. Do you think though that he would have a uh, a significant impact on other teams he was playing against? So, for example, if you were defending against Haaland, you would would your again mind or mental process be variably different from definitely. the previous player you were playing against Def- before? Definitely. Yeah. Um, I mean, even lower level leagues that like that I'm playing in, mm. I know there's certain players I can get tight to. I know there's not. I mean, I wouldn't dream of trying to get tight to Erling Haaland. No. So I know he's stronger than me. I know mm. he'd roll me. Mm. Uh, so you know, you've got a choice to make. You either let him try and win the ball, and you go for the second ball, or you sort of do him on the halfway line. But you don't want to race him. You no. don't. You don't want to let him push it past you because he's quicker than you. Yeah. You don't want to get shoulder to shoulder with him because he's stronger than you. Mm-hmm. You don't want to get tight to him because he'll roll you. Um, I mean that. But that's just that's how good he is. Whereas in the lower level leagues, I'm thinking to myself, right, I can beat that player in the air. So mm-hmm. that's how I'm going to attack him, mm-hmm. him, or I'm going to let him have it, and I'm going to see him the outside and see if he wants to push it around me because I think I'm quicker than him. Yeah. Or I think I'm stronger than him. I can get a toe on the ball. And the, the difference is when you're playing against those top lads, they've they've got you trumped on everything. Yeah. So um, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it'd be, a, it'd be a great opportunity for those lads, no doubt. And they'd they'd uh, relish the opportunity to play against such a great player, but I think they'd struggle wholeheartedly. Yes. No, I don't doubt it. Absolutely. Uh, well, we're coming to the end of 30 minutes. I can't believe 30 minutes has gone by, though. That's quite extraordinary. Yeah, Gabbling. Um, so thank you very much for joining us for our first episode of 
Uh, what are we call this again? Two teachers talking. Two That's teachers it. Talking. Uh, professionalism right there. Well, thank you very much, M, for your input. Thank you, M, for yours. Anytime. And for next time we uh, meet, then you are the burden falls on you to find two topics yeah, uh, for us to discuss. So, uh, good research, bring us some ideas along, and we'll see where we go. Excellent. See you then. See you then.